this is no pressure to be funny, on the 31st of May 2015, coming to you from the Phoenix in Cavendish Square, London. I'm Nick Revel, and I'm standing in for James O'Brien, who's away, Alistair Barry, who is on compassionate leave, and Ed Miliband, as I might as well lead the Labour Party as well, while I'm at it. Uh, and I'm also thinking of applying for the job of Middle East Peace Envoy, because I reckon I could do that just as well in my spare time <laughs> as the current incumbent. Um, in other sporting news, I was talking about football earlier on, but in other sporting news, England's cricket team marked a return to form by beating Australia's Isle of Wight at Lords last week. That was good news. Um, uh, now, Alistair is away for a reason which will become clear from this, and he's written um, a letter of apology uh, for his absence for me to read out, which I'm going to read out, and I'm going to try and do it um, slightly in Alistair's voice, because it's very much written in his voice. So if you can imagine this being read by somebody 15 years younger than me, uh, but with even less hair. <laughs> Good. Dear No Pressure, my sincere apologies for not joining you this evening, but I'm looking after my wife, who had chemotherapy on Friday, so I bet you all feel pretty guilty now. This is, of course, a joke, as I am not in the business of getting my friend to read out passive-aggressive messages to his audience just for the fun of it. It's quite important in the canon of cancer behavior to always appear stoical, so I hope we can all just rest happy in the knowledge that I am a better person than you in general, and Nick Revel in particular. <laughs> my wife's prognosis is very good, and we hope all will be well soon. What I'm waiting for now is some sort of dramatic but ultimately uplifting turn of events to help the Edinburgh show that I'm writing about it. As well as a flat refusal to work around my diary, one really annoying thing about cancer is its lack of concern for a good dramatic arc. An Australian comedian friend of ours did say he'd give me a thousand pounds if she died at the end, which it's okay to laugh at because my wife did a lot. It will come as no surprise to you that we are using comedy to get through a lot of this, and it could be so much worse. As I said to a good friend whose kids have cystic fibrosis the other day, okay, you win. <laughs> Incidentally, if you do ever find yourself in the unfortunate position of having cancer, do try and do it as far away from the Lister Hospital in Stevenage as you can. <laughs> Only yesterday, five months into her treatment, my wife discovered the postal address they had for her was somehow one she left when she was 14, which, I hasten to add, was quite some time ago. <laughs> the vast majority of people looking after my wife are amazing, but overworked, under-resourced, and clearly being run into the ground so that they can be used as an excuse to privatize the whole thing. Sorry this bit's not funnier, but thankfully, I'm not delivering it. <laughs> <laughs> So, apologies once again that I can't be with you tonight, but I trust you are all having a marvellous evening. Much love, and please do help to save the NHS, perhaps by not voting Tory. Oh, damn, really didn't want to end on a downer. Best wishes, Alistair Barry. So, thank you, Alistair. Right, we all start on a, on a song, and it's a, a pleasure to bring back a... No pressure guests, so regular you could probably make an inappropriate joke about the digestive system here, says Alistair. Please welcome James Sherwood. Thank you very much. Now, you'll have noticed, because you're that kind of people, that the government has uh, dropped its plans to introduce the British Bill of Rights straight away, but they're probably still going to do it at some point, uh, because they really don't like um, the uh, European 
Commission on, uh, on Human Rights, uh, despite the fact they're probably not all that clear what's in it. And they're very, very fond of the British Bill of Rights, despite the fact it hasn't been written yet. Um, and so I thought I would uh, write a song along those lines. A British Bill of Rights is a fine thing. The European one is something to be feared. I don't care if they both say the same thing. The foreign one just smells weird. British human rights, they are normal. The European ones were written by a loon. Ours give us all the rights to do what we like. Theirs send us all to bed in the afternoon. The EU makes me spew. The thought of Brussels makes me cry. I abhor Jacques Delors, though I don't remember why. The European Act is a nonsense, and it's time that we hit it out the park. The only people who support it are dangerous subversives like Dominic Grieve and Kenneth Clark. We'll consult with all opinions, all political colours, the red, the blue, the yellow, pink and mauve. Then all of the thoughts will be fairly and impartially collated by Michael Gove. Terrorists and anarchists, nasty foreign chaps like that. Invariably, they all walk free just because they own a cat. It's true, it's European law. A pedo with a tabby gets their case thrown out the door. The Europeans refuse to compromise, so we refuse to scrap our opposition. Why should they keep their stupid bill when they won't vote for us at Eurovision? The European Human Rights Convention is just inferior. I don't mean to be blunt. A British Bill of Rights is much better because it's got a picture of the Queen on the front. <laughs> James Sherwood, who is also part of our panel and will join us at the end of the table now. And please would you welcome our other guests this evening, Michael Deacon, Kate Smirthwaite and Amir Amirani. Right, everybody happy? Good. Uh, Amir Amirani is a director whose new film about the anti-war protests of 2003, We Are Many, has been released as Tony Blair steps down as Middle East peace envoy, thus proving that not only does he make excellent films, he also has an excellent sense of comic timing. <laughs> Kate Smirthwaite is a comedian and activist who was described as a powerhouse of observational wit by The Spectator and a lefty cockwomble by somebody on Twitter. Guess, guess which one became a show title. Michael Deacon is the political sketch writer for The Telegraph, which presumably makes him a righty cockwomble, although we can't be sure. And James Sherwood is, as we've already discussed, the no-pressure-to-be-funny version of Prunes. Ladies and gentlemen, your panel. And welcome. Okay. Right, well, I, I want to uh, kick off by uh, talking about Amir's film, which I saw... Uh, last week, and uh, I really loved. I found it, um, it, it. It's about the 2003 
anti-war protests. I'll get Amir to describe it in more detail. But uh, it, uh, I found it a really uh, uplifting, entertaining, and informative film. Uh, by the way, did anybody give, give, give me a shout? Did anybody go on that march on February the 15th? Yeah, yeah. Quite, quite a few of us were on the march. It was fantastic. I think for a, for a British lefty, it was perfect, really, because, you know, political protest and lots of queuing. It was just, <laughs> just beautiful. Um, right, well, I, I'm not going to uh, wax lyrical about the film at this point. Uh, I, I'm just going to ask uh, Amir to give a, a bit more of a, um, a picture of it. Um, Amir, uh, the question that I want to ask you first is, um, you know, millions of people worldwide walked in protest against uh, the Iraq war, but it did happen. So my question to you first is, why revisit uh, a failure? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> in one sense it was, you know, it was a, a failure. I, I was on it um, in, um, in Berlin and it was my first political act. I'd never been on a demonstration before. And uh, I came back to London, and my friends said, oh, you know, you, you missed a really amazing day. And, uh, and I said, well, it was pretty big in Berlin. And Anyway, I sort of wondered why it upset me that I'd missed being in, in London. And I kind of thought about it more, and I realized that it was a huge, it was a global demonstration in 800 cities. It was the biggest one in, in history. And, and as a filmmaker, I thought, it's a fantastic story to tell. How did something like this happen? Yes, it didn't, didn't stop the war, but how did it happen? On its own merit, it felt like a fantastic story to tell. So I started out wanting to tell that story, and then as I got into it, I ended up needing to tell the story because it felt like too important a story not to tell. That it had, you know, something that brought so many people out on one day for one thing just seemed fantastically important. It was a kind of heroic failure Although, for those of you who haven't seen the film, I hope if you do see the film, you'll see that that doesn't where the story uh, ends. Absolutely. Yes, it didn't stop the war, but actually other things happened, which I don't want to spoil for you, but uh, it had other Im implications. And so, in, in the end, looking back now, over the nine years it's taken me to make the film, um, you do need that span of time to tell this kind of story. It's interesting, because I know that you started... When, when did you get the idea to actually make it? It was quite... Soon uh, after so the event. Quite soon after the event. So 2003 was the event. 2005 was when I started thinking, mm, there's something here. And I actually did my first interviews on the film in April of 2006. Um, so, yeah, it goes back that far. And I spent four years sort of developing the story because no one had really excavated that whole story. And you were saying that um, it took you a long time to get the funding, which I think in itself is quite interesting. But mm. in a sense, do you think that there was a... a, a a serendipitous benefit in the fact that it came out a bit later. Did it give you more perspective on it? I mean, certainly 10 years since yeah. the event seems an appropriate time. And it, it, puts it, it was. In, puts it into a kind of, I don't know, better perspective somehow, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think some stories really do need to be told over a span of time. I, yeah. I mean, I can't claim any amazing foresight. I didn't think I was going to spend that long making it. But because it took so long to research it, so long to raise the money for it... Um, it meant that it basically, I only finished it a couple of months ago. Um, and so it took in what happened with Egypt. It took in what happened with Syria. And the fact that, in a sense, you know, exactly 10 years apart, there was one vote in parliament which went for war yeah. and one vote uh, which was against for, for Syria. Um, and that was kind of interesting. Um, and you could sort of 
trace the connections. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if anyone's seen it yet. I really urge you to go and see it. I mean, I think if you like this show, you'll, you'll love the film. Um, you, you were talking about the consequences and, you know, the fact that uh, the Commons voted against intervention in Syria. And uh, I found it a really quite... I, I felt quite proud that, uh, um, as a result of that, it didn't get through Congress either. Yeah. You know? And, it, uh, you know, obviously my question at the top why celebrate a failure was yeah. intended to be facetious rather than just mean spirited. <laughs> um, but you, seeing those, seeing those consequences. Uh, yeah, and in a way, I suppose you know. I suppose there's, you know, I should talk about the fact that you know, for instance, the um, on the day of that demonstration, there was a small demonstration in Egypt, and they could see what was happening in the rest of the world. There were more police than there were protesters. And in a wonderful line in the film, one of the, um, one of the Egyptian activists says, um, you know, we could see in Cairo these millions of people, these white whiskey-drinking infidels. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> white whiskey-drinking infidels but, marching for us, really. It was, it was yeah. great. And in a way, that sort of, they said, right, when the war starts, we'll come out in bigger numbers, thinking that instead of 200, it might be 800 or it might be 1,000. And actually, 50,000 people came out on the day the war broke out and occupied Tahrir Square. And to a man, the activists said, that was the turning point. That was the, the moment where we saw we had a democracy movement, which yeah. then flowered in the Egyptian revolution. And then when you, and then when you go to Syria, and, and you see that you know, MP after MP stood up in parliament, because that's not shown on the news, but we, I found it in the debate. Um, MP standing up saying, we were duped. We're not going to be duped again. Uh, and our, um, our constituents are saying, look what happened last time. We, you better not vote for war again this time. And so, yeah, it, it's a kind of, in the kind of narrative, the public narrative is that was a huge demonstration, total waste of time, go away, don't talk about it. There's nothing to talk about. And actually, these things do take time. That's the reason they call them a movement, yeah. because, it, because you need to look at it with, a, uh, with some kind of um, time to, to reflect I went on the anti-war march, but at the time I was living in Tokyo and running a women's football team, um, and uh, which was quite funny because I had a, a guy I drank in the local pub with who was quite... He, he had a girlfriend, but he, was, he had quite a camp voice, and he showed up. We were going to go on this march together, and he showed up with a sign that said... In Tokyo or in... In, in, Tokyo. in Tokyo. He showed yeah. up with a sign, Irish guy, he turned up with a sign that said, Persons of Ambiguous Sexuality Against the War. <laughs> because I ran a football team, everyone thought I was gay. And, uh, uh, but, um, but it was fascinating, because I'd been, I'd been going on protests and marched since I was a student as well, and, uh, and I'm very used to sort of standing outside buildings and screaming things, and what do we want? and when do we want it and all this kind of stuff and we went on the march in Tokyo which was huge thousands and thousands of people um, but they insisted on keeping the march on the pavement so as not to disturb the traffic Other <laughs> <laughs> of you two go on the march you, you guys uh, no I, um, I, I didn't I, um, I just didn't feel that I didn't feel there was an obvious answer I, 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 really, I may be in a tiny minority in this particular panel or indeed room I don't know because on the one hand I wasn't really convinced by the case for going to war in Iraq, but on the other hand, I didn't want to be on the same side as George Galloway, and some other <laughs> fairly bad people who are on that stop the, you know, stop the war I don't, I'm not really happy with. I think they should really be named Stop Some Wars. They're, you know, there are certain uh, countries they probably want to destroy um, on that particular side. But I, I don't know, I just wasn't convinced, because on the one hand, I didn't want the war, but on the other hand, I wasn't that convinced by Saddam Hussein. You know, I wasn't sure that I particularly wanted him to continue to be in charge, or for him to hand over power to his sons, who might not be very nice men either. So I, I, I just didn't know the answer, so I didn't feel that I could commit 
to a march yeah. and say, I don't want this, because then what are the consequences of not invading? See, I, didn't, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. I think I felt that I didn't know what the answer was, and if I wasn't sure what the answer was, probably war wasn't the best way to express I don't know what the answer is. Well, um, yeah, and, 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 and also, you know, throwing out law and just deciding that we live in an anarchy is also another great yeah. idea. Because um, otherwise, then, you know, anyone can decide to do anything. When, when it became the standard thing to say that, um, oh, they had no exit strategy, I mean, my feeling was always, yes, they did. Their exit strategy, they thought it was going to work. Mm. Yeah. And that was their exit strategy. They thought, well, you know, we'll, we'll go into that country and we'll take it and then it'll work. Did you think and that was, it, was just, it was just a crap exit strategy. They, it's not they, they didn't have even one. said, um, a couple of nights ago, we, I was doing a talk about the film with, with Brian Eno, and he talked about a paper he read by somebody called um, Ray Edelman at the time. They, went, they, they actually said, when we go into Iraq, they are going to greet us with flowers. They're going to be naming streets in Baghdad after Cheney and Rumsfeld. That's what they thought. So, it, you know, as you say, they thought this was going to be a cakewalk. It's going to take a couple of weeks. I mean, like when they, when they pulled down the Saddam statue. I mean, if you, you know, if you filmed the right streets, that invasion went terrifically well. Yeah. And that, you know, the, whole, the whole thing was outstanding, yeah. beginning to end. And that statue thing was also, cons that was also set up. Are we saying that people in Iraq actually quite liked Saddam or at least preferred Saddam to the US? I mean, I don't, well, I don't know. It, no, 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 no. Why, why does it have to be one or the other? I don't understand. Why, why can it be not that they actually hated Saddam Hussein and would much rather that the British and the Americans hadn't supplied him with the chemical weapons he used sure. to bomb his people? Why can it not be that that, that can coexist at the same time as not wanting an invasion. I'm Iranian. I don't particularly like the regime in Iran, but I don't want Britain and America to bomb my country and uh, kill lots of people in the name of whatever it is they think they're, they're giving us. Lots of coffin, mm. I think. Paradoxically, what, what, also, I think paradoxically, and as James said, you know, the exit strategy was, oh, it's going to work. It, 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 it's, uh, the question I would throw is, well, you know, one's got to look at one clearly recognises that they are, they are disgusting regimes in Iraq there at the time, whatever, but that one's got to then look at, well, what are the consequences going to... Are the consequences going to make this better or worse, you know? And, um, and I don't think there's any question that uh, they made it worse, haven't they? Well, I'd, I'd really like to know your view on this. You know, let's imagine we had never invaded Iraq, it, mm -hmm. it hadn't happened. What do you think would have happened to Iraq? Would it have been better off in what ways? What would have happened to Saddam? Would he have lost power in some other way? What, what would have happened? Uh, I, I don't know. Things, who, who can tell what would have happened? I can tell you what would have happened. There would be no ISIS today. That's what would have happened. And, um, you know, it's, it, I don't know why it is our role in the world, in Britain, to decide we are the policemen. Someone show me that certificate. I'd really like to see it, the one that said Britain and America are the ones who decide on their own, ascribe themselves to themselves the right to go and bomb whoever they want, whenever they want. We're a little bit like those people in the quiet coach who think it's their job to go round going, uh, have you seen the sign? Have you yeah. seen the oh, sign? Oh, I do that. There's oh, I do that all the time. I never sit in the quiet coach because I I'm just a, get I'm so annoyed if somebody's <laughs> playing music in the quiet yeah. coach. I just totally sort of going to kick off. They should you know, totally I just hand out SS uniforms because there are certain people who get in there and they're like, <laughs> my moment has come at last. Look, row three, someone with a PlayStation. <laughs> but isn't it so, don't you find that so annoying though? I mean, yeah, hang on, I'm with those people. I'm sorry. Oh, you are? Are you one of the people? 
think, noise. I think the kind of people... Totally. I, I, see, the thing, the trouble is this. When you go to book your train ticket, it says quiet coach or no preference. And I want a special button that says I want to be in the noisy coach because you know what those children screaming are? Oh, they're life. They're real life. Yeah, but oh. if you have got a quiet coach, I think the people who go into a quiet coach and play on a PlayStation, play, they're basically just embryonic dictators mm. who, uh, you know, if you don't sort them out then, then you're going to have to, uh, you know... Bomb them and, uh, and invade. Well, I, 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 I back that all the way. I yeah. back that all the way. I tell you something. In the um, in the run up to the election, um, the Spectator ma- magazine uh, ran an interview with David Cameron, and it began by explaining that the interview was actually taking place in the quiet coach, and David Cameron was speaking loud enough to be heard about three coaches away. And I thought, Jesus Christ! If the Labour Party actually wanted to win this election, they would just print that single sentence on a billboard all over the country <laughs> because the people of Britain are not going to fucking stand for that. Well, it would have been a lot. And clearly, more... you know, only about fifty thousand people read the Spectator, so that message did not get wide enough to win the election, but it would have done, I think. I think you're right, actually. I think, it, and, and certainly a much more uh, uplifting and inspiring message than Labour actually delivered to the, uh, to, uh, to, to the electorate before the, uh, b- before the election. Yeah, um, Labour never quite crystallised what, what specifically was odious about Cameron, but that would have done it. I that would have absolutely oh, nailed it, no, yeah. There's no single image of him. It's, I mean, it was all very well Total saying activism. he was the kind of guy who might talk loudly in a, in a quiet coach. That would have been half That's the job. But to say, what do I mean, the kind of guy who... He actually, look, he's doing it. He's pure, concentrated evil. I think that's a good point. Maybe we'll come back to this later. As, as you probably know, if you're regulars, um, at half time, there'll be pens and paper for you to write comments and questions down. There's loads of stuff that I still want to talk to Amir about uh, on, on, on the film. But I'm just looking at the time here. I think, given that we sort of veered slightly towards domestic politics, it's a good point to have uh, the monologue spot, which I normally do. Obviously, I'm not doing it this week because my voice is being heard enough on the podcast. So, um, doing the monologue this week is one of our uh, fantastic tech lads uh, from down there, Paul Willers, um, is going to do a, a monologue. Um, well, I'll leave you to explain, leave him to explain what it is. So, standing in for me, wow, what big shoes to fill. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please, warm welcome for Paul Willers. Is this what you wanted, Russell? Is it? No, I trusted you. I trusted you and your long words, and it's just the same, but worse. Don't you have anything to say? Answer me, you beautiful bastard. (laughs) Russell stared back at me, stony-faced, motionless. It was 5.30am on May the 8th. I was stood at my mirror, topless, (laughs) shouting at my weak old tattoo of Russell Brand's face (laughs) that now dominated my abdomen. I knew he couldn't answer me. He was just a tattoo. But I wanted to say it to him. The man I put all my faith in. My election guru. In the mirror over my shoulder, I could see the Morley and Otwood results coming in on the TV. Ed Balls was trying to desperately recapture happier times by tweeting his own name. But he couldn't because his tears were rapidly collecting on his phone screen, making it nigh on impossible to type. I turned back to Russell's face on my chest, angrily applying Savalon to the unhealed skin, (laughs) slapping it on as if he could feel it. He needed to feel this. He needed to share my pain. But he couldn't. I was just hurting myself, just like voting Lib Dem in 2010. (laughs) How had this happened again? Um, That that didn't happen. Um, I didn't get a Russell Brand chest tattoo because I'm not an idiot. Um, Also, there really isn't any room on my chest next to my Owen Jones tattoo. Um, (laughs) It's Owen holding the severed head of Ian Duncan Smith like a miner's lamp. I'd show it here. It's a podcast. Um, Despite the fact he was lauded by every media outlet as the voice of the young, I watched Russell's interviews talking of not voting and ripping up ballot cards and thought, oh, right, 
So if we don't vote on the 8th of May, the Tories will just magically up sticks and uh, we all live in affordable housing made of hollowed out Trident missiles. Great. <laughs> sure. See you on the 8th. Um, I did think at one point of getting his picture printed on a cake, but uh, that was purely so I could hand out slices to my friends and we could all have a little bit of rustle inside of us. You know, like the good old days. Um, <laughs> that idea fell through, though, when my local bakery said they wouldn't print the cake because it disagreed with their strongly held belief in making the most of your democratic fucking right. <laughs> so, personally, I didn't buy into the whole no voting argument. What has become clear since the election result, though, is that the majority of people aged 18 to 24 did. In fact, only a pitiful 43% of young people decided to vote. So maybe I wasn't swayed by the wise man from the far east of Essex, but did his words actually have an effect? Uh, it's pretty ridiculous to say that Russell Brand is to blame for the low turnout, but what I certainly do think is that his constant impassioned talk of not voting at most did influence some young voters, and at the least he encapsulated feelings that were already circulating. His articulate arguments, however stupid, in interviews provided neat sound bites for those already disillusioned with politics, who in turn posted them on Facebook with a, yeah, fuck voting, what he said. Much like the bedsheets of any tour bus in 2005, the news feed on my social media was absolutely covered in Russell Brandt. <laughs> By the point he came out and told everyone to suddenly vote Labour, it felt like the idea of not voting was already out there as a viable option. And more importantly, one that you wouldn't get vilified for by your peers, because Russ said it, and Russell's fit. <laughs> this apathy towards voting amongst my age group is alarming, if not that surprising. In 2010, last time around, there was a real sense of purpose, our chance to have our voices heard, mainly focused over the issue of tuition fees. I actively campaigned on my uni campus. By campaigned, I mean I drunkenly ranted at people in smoking areas, misquoted Tony Benn, and once a week I'd post an article on Facebook, usually from The Guardian, about wind farms or belittling the BNP. But I felt in my own way I was politically active. And it felt like it was encouraging my friends to be politically active too. Sometimes the same article from The Guardian would get shared five or six times. It felt positive. People wanted change, and they felt they could instill it with their vote. And then the Lib Dems did get in off the back of the student vote, and they shafted us. Everyone was angry, there was a protest which lacked direction, and turned into students throwing stuff at the police, lighting fires, and someone lobbing a fire extinguisher off a building like a fucking tit. We'd changed nothing. We'd voted, they changed their minds, we protested, they did it anyway. And over the next five years, the passion dissipated. I think a lot of people woke up this time on the 7th of May and said, nah, probably not worth it. The majority of people my age thought that. 57 fucking percent of them did. If I vote, it's not going to change things. We've been lied to before. I think, if anything, that is the legacy. <laughs> Removing any remaining trust in politicians from a generation of young voters already fairly bereft of it. So here we are again. What now then, Russell? There have been little protests in the past fortnight, and there was a much bigger anti-austerity march planned for the 20th of June. Perhaps this is the start of the revolution he talked about. It does feel like a revolution to me, but not in a sense of change. It feels like we've gone a whole turn in the cycle of political engagement back to where we were after the last election. Just like then, there were lots of young people angry that the results didn't go their way and who want their voices heard. I think we're at a crossroads. If we continue along the same path as 2010 and the march descends into chaos and violence, just like then, we lose the ability to have our voices heard over the issue we care about. What is the one thing you remember from the student riots? The fire extinguisher. Everyone there was tarred with the same brush. Everyone was derided as an idiot. The passion dissipated. 
throwing bottles and smoke bombs at the police at an anti-austerity march, when out of all the public sector the police have been hit by some of the biggest cuts, is like lying in a hospital bed, rubbing salt into the wound of the guy in the bed next to you. Provoked or not, it's a dick move. Systematic overhauls and Russell for PM aside, I honestly don't know what the answer is to getting more young people passionate about politics. Calling them young people is definitely not it. If people aren't interested during the buzz of an election, it's even harder to interest them in the five years following it. I do feel, though, that a peaceful march on the 20th can maybe be used as a positive thing to build on. Watching the march against the Iraq war in 2003 was what first got me interested in politics. Without knowing what would follow, seeing there was a, such a large group of people out there who held a similar view and were willing to stand up for what they believed in gave me hope. I'm not saying that anti-austerity march is going to have an impact in anywhere near the same scale. Of course it's not. But in terms of encouraging people to engage outside of the election period, I feel it's a lot better than either sharing articles on Facebook or conversely shoving Douglas Carswell around at a bus stop no matter how satisfying that may be. <laughs> Paul Willis, ladies and gentlemen. Great stuff, Paul. Thank you very much. Right, okay, so where do we start on this? Um, I, well, um, there seemed to be an underlying assumption in Paul's monologue that we, we, uh, we need change. Um, is that fair, or is it basically all right to go on as we are? Um, Michael. Um, depends what you mean by change. If you're talking about the, um, the, the, well, the voting system, should we start with the voting system? Uh, wherever you like. Change? Yeah, okay, all right then. Yeah. Well, um, we have a conservative majority government. Um, if the government was to actually deflect the way people voted, um, if we had proportional representation, we wouldn't have a conservative majority government. We'd have a conservative UKIP government because about 38% of people um, at this election voted conservative and about 13% voted UKIP, which would take you to... 51%. Um, now, of course, I realise if you had a different voting system, people might vote differently, in which case I would suggest actually more people would vote UKIP because probably a lot of people out there think, well, I basically agree with UKIP, but um, they're not going to win an election, so I'll vote for Labour or the Conservatives or I won't vote at all. So um, this is, broadly speaking, a Conservative country. Um, the last, over the last 40 years, only one Labour leader has won a general election. That was Tony Blair. I don't know whether you view him as a hardline radical socialist. I personally, <laughs> I personally don't, but he is the one Labour leader over four whole decades now who has noticed that the, the people who bother to vote generally vote for Conservatives. And so he created a kind of nice conservatism. He appealed to Middle England, and he understood you have to take votes off the Conservatives. So... Um, there you have it. But um, yeah, I think it's absolutely right. Look, I am not a fan of UKIP at all. I do not support them. I, I have never voted for them, and I don't think I ever would. But I do think it's scandalous that for 3.8 million votes and 13% of the popular vote, they should get only one MP. Meanwhile, the SNP, who have 1.5 million votes, should get 56 MPs. That's crazy and wrong. Also, the Green Party, I feel sorry for them as well, one MP, and they got, I forget the number, something like a million, million, wasn't it? There you go. So, however, the problem is with changing the political system, how do you get that through? Because your government is a conservative government that benefits from first past the vote, sorry, first past the post, if I can say that, and the only other viable or plausible government is a Labour majority, they, you know, if, if they're going to win in 2020, probably not, but anyway, let's say they do. They also benefit from first-past-the-post. Those major parties do not benefit from changing the voting system, so why would they? So I don't know when it would happen, but there you go. Uh, yeah, the current system does not reflect the way people vote. It's an interesting observation that the, the right-wing parties add up to more than 50%, and yeah. that, that's a reflection of, it being a, uh, of this being a conservative country. But actually, if you 
take the idea that the, the, the Liberals and the Lib Dems over history have probably always just about, in terms of Westminster pol political gravity, have probably been to the left of centre. There has always been a left-wing majority between, between Labour and Lib Dems. Because it's, it's, the, there's only really been the Tories as a right-wing party, and the Tories haven't got 50% of the vote since the 50s. No, but I, I'm, no, so I, there's always been, in, just in terms of the votes that have, that have happened, well, there's I'm always not, been not, a left-wing majority. I'm not absolutely sure about the Lib Dems as left-wing. If you look at anyone who voted a Lib, De Lib Dem at this general election, all right, they got only eight MPs, but they had some like seven, eight percent of the vote. All of those people who voted Lib Dem this time were voting for a party that's just spent five years in actually quite a stable coalition government with the Conservatives. So those people, those eight percent, um, they're clearly not that anti-Tory. That yeah. takes you up to nearly 60% of the existing vote. Yeah. I mean, the, the people who voted Lib Dem this time are clearly the most baffling human beings you're ever likely to encounter. I mean, what, are they, what, what, what do they want? What's, what's, what's the matter with them? Um, it's, I mean, after a party has just, just uh, stage by stage, removed every single reason for voting for them. Do you think that um, uh, the, the fact that the Tories have got a majority is going to be a problem for the Tories? Because it seemed to me that some of the things in the Queen's speech and some of the things in the manifesto were things that, uh, and it's not just my original observation, people are suggesting there are certain things that they put on the manifesto uh, in the belief that they would be in a coalition with the Lib Dems again and that they would be able to drop some of those things uh, ostensibly in, uh, as concessions to their coalition partners. Uh, yeah, that's, that's so absolutely what they thought would happen. They didn't expect to win a majority. So in other yeah, words, we've got, we got an electoral system where even the people who benefit from it are a bit thrown by the result it's not, it's actually, and worried. In practice, it's not going to make that much difference because the Tory majority is only 12 and the Tory leadership is well aware that some of their Tories will rebel against the more extreme policies they put in only to appease their own nuttier backbenchers and therefore those things won't get through anyway. You know, fox hunting is not going to come back. So, so the issue is, like, we all want choice. Choice is brilliant. But, that, but, but choice is brilliant. There are various limitations to that. And one is, what have you got to choose between? Um, and when there isn't a party out there that, that represents what you want, or when voting for them would be a waste of your vote, um, then that's a problem. Um, and, and then there's an issue of how you vote so that you can have transferable and all this kind of stuff. But finally, and I think this is the most important thing, it's an issue of information. Um, so there's a bloke at my gym, and this is how... This is how you know, we find out the truth of democracy. Um, everybody I know says, oh, I don't know anyone who voted Conservative. Um, how on earth did they get in? Uh, but there's a bloke at my gym who says, oh, yeah, I voted Conservative. It's actually better for me uh, because I earn 13 grand a year. Right? And so, so how does he afford to go to a gym? About <laughs> no, he works there. Oh, right. he, works, Sorry, he works at the gym. Yes, he works <laughs> at the gym. That's how he affords to go. But also, it is, in, fairness, in fairness, you could afford to go to my gym. My gym is it's an ex-council gym. It's, very, it's, it's, it's huge and is very bad. It's now been sold off to property developers to GLL and better. But, um, but it is a very rough gym. On Monday morning um, of last week, uh, at 9am, there was an announcement that went... Would a member of reception staff please call the police? There is a drunk woman in the pool. <laughs> and that was at 9am on a Monday morning. Like, you know you're, which end of the gym spectrum you are at at that moment. Do you think she was regretting how she voted in the election? I think so. But yes, but this is the thing. It's about the information that you have. And I, I think that the vast majority of people have this idea, well, I'm voting against that guy who can't eat a bacon sandwich. Uh, and when you say what... What are the issues that you care about? Um, in actual fact, and I, I now I met uh, someone who had run as a UKIP uh, candidate. I met Kelly Maloney, and uh, 
a former boxing promoter. Yeah. Um, I think boxing promoter again these days. Um, and we went, we went for a drink in Belfast because we'd been on a TV show together. And, um, and I kind of said, you know, you seem so pleasant and reasonable. How can you possibly have stood as a UKIP uh, candidate, you know, like, I mean, they stand for so many awful things that, you know, and yet you seem like such a sort of open-minded, pleasant individual. And she said, um, oh, it's just the Europe thing. I didn't really understand the rest of their policies. And I'm, but that's someone who's running, let alone the electorate, like, and without this information and without a press that provides us with this information, we're in this now, situation where, of course, democracy doesn't in, work. It doesn't fairness, give us what we want and need. In fairness, and uh, to, to disagree with you, you know, bad information through the press... Uh, sorry, there's a prime example of how good and uh, accurate um, our press is. Um, I don't know whether you saw the uh, Daily Mail's reporting uh, this week on, uh, on the migrants from Syria, Afghanistan, sub-Saharan Africa, who are uh, uh, living now in costs, living rough, and, uh, and they are ruining the holiday experience <laughs> for British tourists. And I think that, you know, it just shows how selfish these people are. They, it's really, it yeah, should be us Britons who well, go and ruin Greek islands, mm. shouldn't it? It should be well, us that well, make a right mess. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you, you leave Manchester for a couple of weeks to get away from the homeless problem, don't you? I mean, but also this idea that, you know, you, 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 that they're, they're living in war zones in fear of being raped and murdered or just dying because the crops fail, and so they cross the Sahara and cross the Mediterranean with no thought for what they're doing to hard-working, hard-working British families. Can I just say also, I mean, of, of the myriad problems with democracy that we're talking about, there's also a question about who are these politicians and how do they get selected? There was a study I read looking at the last few decades and the kind of demographics of, of politicians and, and, and MPs. And at least for Labour, if you go back 20, 30 years, there were totally different kind of class. And now you have basically professional politicians, and they are increasingly removed from the everyday lives of, of, of people. So there's this thing going on in Parliament where their aspirations or their ideas of what people want and are just so, so, there's such a gulf between them. And that's, I mean, I think that's a serious problem. Do you think that was one of the problems with uh, the way that the Labour performance was so poor? Specifically? Yeah. I mean, For example, look at um, Scotland. I mean... You know, there, who was it? I read somewhere, you know, this um, commentator was sort of saying, you, you know, it's as if one day the Scottish people woke up and just thought, you know, just on a whim, we're just going to kick Labour out and vote for somebody else. <coughs> and actually, it, this is, they said this has been brewing for a long yeah. time. Can I, can I say something yeah. about Scotland? Because I'm actually uh, from Scotland. You can probably tell from my broad <laughs> Scottish accent. Um, but um, in a way, in this election, uh, Scotland was irrelevant. Even if Labour had won every single seat in Scotland, they would still have lost the election. The Tories would still have a majority. There was only one significant role the SNP uh, played in this election, which was to help the Conservatives win more votes in England by allowing them to do their poster campaign, saying the filthy Scots are going to come and nick the money out of your back pocket. So that was their role. Ultimately, that was the result the SNP obviously wanted anyway, because the SNP exists solely to achieve independence for Scotland. Um, if they had entered a coalition or any kind of arrangement with, you know, with Labour. If it had been a Labour SNP government, that would be absolutely no use to the SNP because if it had been a success, then everyone in Scotland would go, hang on a minute, Westminster's not so bad. Let's 
stay in the union. What the SNP wants... No, 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 no. No, 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 really. The SNP exists to achieve independence, and so a Tory government in Westminster, that's actually ideal for them. That's what they want. They want to persuade people in Scotland not to do that. It would be a disaster for them to have an effective left-wing government in Westminster. That would be totally contrary to their aims. So I, I think they, I, they, they have shelved the, 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 the goal of, 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 of independence. They haven't. That's, that's, their, that's their raison d'etre. That's all they're for. Well, or, or, they have or a full manifesto it. of other policies. They, 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 they didn't write it for fun. They're just waiting for, to, for the next moment. Where, well, because having lost okay. one referendum, they can't afford just to have another one sure. and lose it. And they know they would lose it if they held it again tomorrow. So they've got to wait for a time where they think, right, we're certain to win it this time. But a, a Tory government in Westminster, that's ideal but, for them. That will help. But can you, you, know, can you blame them for wanting to leave would be my question. Um, I, I think um, this idea that SNP supports social justice, as they claim to, is an absolute fantasy. Um, I mean, you know, the SNP, as you know, the SNP has been in government in Scotland for, for quite a while now. First as a minority, now as a majority in you know, the Scottish Parliament. They already have powers to raise income tax up there by three p, up to three p. They've never used that. If you look at um, education in Scotland, um, literacy rates and numeracy rates are actually in decline, which is pretty disgraceful for any first world country, but for a, you know, for a government that supposedly believes in social justice is terrible. Um, in Scotland, you know, a country where they have free university tuition fees, people from, the number of people from working class backgrounds going to university is for some reason in decline. In is England, right? where they've got, yes. And in England, where they're ridiculously large, somehow, I can't explain these figures, but they're actually oh. on the rise. Now, I can't explain that to you, but the fact is, this idea that the SNP believes in social justice left wing, no, it's just a fantasy. Surely They'll say anything. They will say anything. Surely having free tuition no, is, is very, is a, is is a very commitment to social no, justice. No, it's very unprogressive, actually. Um, people who go to university... No, graduates, yeah. graduates earn more money than people who do not go to universities. Therefore, wouldn't it be progressive, actually, to effectively tax them for that advantage they're getting over people who do not go to university? Shouldn't they have to pay for that? It's a very yeah. middle-class idea, the idea well, that it should be free. Right. Well, I, I, one, good, okay, good, good. If you're going to get an advantage over people who don't go um, to university, I think you should, you know, why shouldn't you have to, to pay for that? Let's, I tell you what, I'm going to call the interval now simply because I think that leaves us with a few, tail, uh, a few loose threads to pick up on in the second half, uh, and there's masses of other stuff we haven't got through in this, this, this half that I wanted to cover. But thanks to the panel by applause, and we will see you in about 10 or 15 minutes. Thanks very much. Okay, we had a really good chunk of uh, comments here. Okay, um, in no particular order. There is no longer a democratic choice. The first half of the show was based on the misapprehension that there are only left-wing parties in the UK. There has not been a left-wing party since Tony Blair and his collusion in the severance of the umbilical... Don't interrupt. No, 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 don't interrupt when I'm really... it's not that there are only left-wing uh, parties, it's that there, there are, are any. Oh, you're interrupting I'm, to help I'm just me. slightly correcting the right. whole essence of Sorry, the question. That, that, that drives me to, to, to ask this one here. Uh, how's feminism doing? Not very well, if you go... <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! With one bound, he was free! <laughs> Good. I'm so terribly sorry. How free a press do we have... Uh, if newspapers bury stories advertisers don't like. Oh, well, that's... Uh, do you want to comment on that, being tele- <laughs> telegraph writer? Um, I don't know why you're asking me about that. I, I don't either. <laughs> I I'm sorry, because you paid me not to. <laughs> no. But do you, 
You're still asking me. Good. Um, <laughs> um, well, uh, on the subject of that particular story, um, maybe, I, uh, maybe, maybe I'll be more general rather than specific. I would say, though, that you know, people talk a lot about press bias in general, don't they? And they talk about the, um, the effect of the press on the public. Um, I, I kind of wish that the press um, had as much influence over what the public thinks as some people, particularly on the left, imagine they have. But if you just look at the sales of newspapers, man, we, we just cannot be. You know, we, we, There's 62 million people living in this country. The biggest selling newspaper is The Sun with 2 million. You know, the Telegraph sells 500,000, um, if that, a day. Um, I just, we, we just don't have the power to swing elections and change people that much, I think. You know, I mean, Isn't people the Daily Mail the most much. widely... The Daily Mail website is the most... Big, yeah, but people don't... If, if you look at the actual stories that do really well on the Mail website, it's the celebrity stories. People don't read the politics stories. And, and the comment stories, I mean, as in the opinion columns, their big opinion columns see you are huge in the print version, like Richard Littlejohn, just do not get read at all online. You know, Mail Online, politically, is irrelevant. People talk about Rupert Murdoch and the way he endorses certain parties' general elections, and they think that influences people to vote those way. Actually, it's the other way around. You know, Rupert Murdoch likes to back the winning party, mm-hmm. so he takes um, a good guess at who's going to win, and then he backs them that way. So it says, "Look, the sun was on the side of the winning party." Oh, I, th- I, th- I think it's that way around. I don't think around. he has that much I mean, um, influence. I think it's the other way around. I, I, I don't. I don't believe that. That's that. That's the what you know. I, I mean, if. You're a billionaire, you know, and and the first thing they all do is build a media empire. If it's a waste of time, you kind of wonder why they spend that money. Every oligarch is well because they, they want to make money. money. What they want is money. Money's more important than politicians. They want These people, are, you know, it's money that drives them. It's money that drives them. It's also it's also they want to buy influence, which is exactly well, what they do. Just on the Iraq thing, but serves as an example. <clears throat> Murdoch owned 176 newspapers worldwide. And every single one of the editors of those newspapers, every single one, supported the war. And there was an article... There was an an article uh, by Rory Greenstead. He said, isn't Rupert Murdoch a lucky man? He just happens to have picked 176 editors who just happened to share his views. I mean, that's a lucky, lucky man. (laughs) And clearly, each one of those editors who shares just by chance Rupert Murdoch's views just happens to have a view that doesn't coincide with what people think. this idea of, well, they have quite low readership, I just, I, I don't really hold sway with that, because first of all, they have massive readership online still, There's, these things are actually getting out much further than we think. One copy of a newspaper can have several readers, and, and what is in the newspapers, even if it isn't very well read, is then repeated and regurgitated on TV discussion shows. A lot of TV news will start with, and you know, and the, the Telegraph today, you know, now the paper review coming up on Sky News, let's look at them, the, the, the newspapers, whatever their readership in the first sort of round, they actually, they have a huge influence on our culture, and to be honest, even if they didn't, that doesn't justify them writing unrepresentative and untrue and misleading and distorting things. Um, And secondly, in terms of this issue of do they just print what people want to read, the answer is to some extent, of course, yes, but it it is the soap opera effect, isn't it? This is why men's football, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit, is, is more, everyone watches it, everyone knows about it, and in the US... 
men's football has had a very much a backseat, and everyone's interested in baseball, and women's football is quite popular in the US. And why is that? And the answer is that you can't name a load of women football players, so you don't know what the story is so far. You don't know whether Arsenal were robbed or... Do you know what I mean? And so until you know that story, it's just impossible to be interested in the next part of the story. And until you know who Kim Kardashian is, the excitement of seeing her bottom is considerably lessened. Um, it, it becomes a cycle, and then once you, then once you know... And so, so, of course, yes, they lead what people are interested in, but at the same time, then, then once people are interested, it becomes a cycle. And, and within that, fair enough, they're trying to sell newspapers. We've all, you know, people write, you know, holiday trash novels because that's what people want to read. The difficulty is, A, when they represent things as truth, um, they call themselves newspapers when what is in there often isn't news. And secondly, when they go right off the rails and just because people want to see pictures of a teenager in a bikini on a beach, that's not a good reason to print it. That, that, that's just a, well, I was in the mood to do something awful, um, so I've done it. And that's that, that sort of argument from evolution, well, you all want to see something despicable, so we've made it, um, is a sort of ultimate moral bankruptcy and a sign of the end of times. Good. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> that's encouraging. <laughs> well, let's turn, let's turn then to, to an institution that we can have faith in, because... Um, <laughs> Here's my question. How possibly could Zet Blatter be expected to regulate an institution with uh, moral probity simply because he's been in charge of it for 17 years? That would be my question. Hmm. It's not fair to expect somebody to be able to run their own corporation, is it? Can I say, can I say one thing uh, in defence of Zet Blatter? When he gave his little speech the other day, um, he said that he appreciated that FIFA has a problem, but that he is the man to fix things. And, you know, in defence of the guy, Absolutely. if there is one talent that Set Blatter has, it is for fixing things. <laughs> <laughs> so. it's, it's the John Major defence, wasn't it, in 97? It says, well, I mean, the place is an absolute mess, but I think the people who've made a mess of it should be allowed to clean it up. Maybe that's why Tony Blair is Middle East peace envoy. He's like, I made this yeah. mess. Yeah, I know. Give me the marigolds, I'll start I know, it up. I know where all the bodies are buried. Yeah. Maybe Blair's just been going around the Middle East going, sorry. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that was me as well. But I'll take, I'll take the award from Tel Aviv University. But what's great, actually, is that, they've, is that they have... You know, they did the inquiry and they've established that there was corruption, which is brilliant because I, I actually thought they were going to do the inquiry and say there's no corruption, and then that would be signs of yet more corruption. But, but the um, great thing you're talking so about the Garcia of, report, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I just, but I love the way so. that they refused to publish it, and, and and they only came out that it was corrupt because Garcia said, wait a minute, this pricey of the report is a complete traducement of what I actually published. I, um, did you did? Did you get the detail about how all these indictments happened through Chuck Blazer, Blazer. the amazingly named uh, uh, American representative on Because that, that is the best way to start a football match, Chuck isn't it? Blazer. Chuck your Blazer. Yeah, yeah. Chuck Blazer's for your You, you all think this is a real news story. It's actually a short story by Martin Amis. I mean, Chuck <laughs> <Blazer>. <laughs> It really... Uh, That's not well, a real person. And you know, what, you know how he was arrested? Because he, he was arrested. He was, the FBI came up to him when he was on his way to a top 
Manhattan restaurant from his apartment at Trump Towers, where he has two apartments, one for his, uh, himself and then one for his cats, apparently. And he was on the way to... <laughs> yeah, but isn't that one of his EU-guaranteed human rights, to keep his cats in Trump Towers? Absolutely, they're all, they're all refugee cats or something. But um, he, was, he, was, he was trundling along on his mobility scooter because he's too huge from all the kickbacks and free meals that he's had to be able to walk. And I just love the way that he's going along on this mobility scooter and the FBI stopped him and said, right, you know... You're in trouble. We've got all, the, uh, all this evidence on you. You've got to, you've got to become an informer, uh, and then you can plea bargain. He's um, like the kind of Mr. Creosote of it international is, it is a beautiful Just s- one more UEFA thing. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. little pun there. <laughs> it, it is a beautifully silly name, Child Blazers. It's, it's quite enjoyable. It sounds like the, the American remake of the, the Watford FC story. <laughs> Chuck Blazer was in the English one. He was Kenny Jackett. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an esoteric but very. Do you think also that um, yeah. no? not a jacket crowd? Okay. You know, in, you know how they're always shuffling football managers around, and if Sepp Platter is going to investigate what's been going on in FIFA, and in the meantime we're still waiting for John Chilcott to come out with his report, maybe they should do a job swap. <laughs> <laughs> Sepp Platter goes and sort of tries to get this report published, and John Chilcott. Because of the FIFA, I think it's good. Well, of course, the tie-up in uh, you know uh, uh, what, what's extraordinary to me is, of course, there's you know no corruption involved in the idea of, of of giving the World Cup to Qatar and holding it in the middle of the summer in a in a country where where homosexuality is banned and alcohol is is not allowed. I mean, what was it he said? I've got it written down here somewhere. But oh yeah, that's right. Um, when I uh, asked about uh, gay people going to Qatar for the twenty. Two World Cup, he said, uh, well, I'd say they should refrain from any sexual activities, <laughs> which is a wonderfully, uh, wonderfully <laughs> progressive way of... Uh, I love the story about Qatar when someone was saying uh, that in a lot of countries, if they're established football countries, then you know, they will build a, you know, a... or they'll have a stadium in the city, um, whereas in Qatar, they haven't built it yet. And they said, what, the stadium? <laughs> no, the city. <laughs> <laughs> what is it, 61? They reckon 61 workers per stadium will be killed... Will die. Uh, you know, I, I said this before, um, and I've used this observation on the show before, but um, it's worth saying it again, which is that the, 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 the Nepalese and, and, and the. I think just the Nepalese workers are dying at such a rate that between now and 2022, they'll lose about 4,000 lives of Nepali workers alone. And when I went online to see how many coalition troops had been killed in Afghanistan, it was something like 3,400, which clearly therefore proves that FIFA is more deadly and dangerous than the Taliban. But isn't it shocking that, that in, a, in a way, that all the corruption is um, the big scandal? And I know people have talked about the, the, the workers in Qatar, but how can the sponsors, how can they possibly, and, and how can FIFA possibly just support this? I mean, they're guilty to me of collusion in... In corporate manslaughter, you're a fucking murderer, Zet Blatter. Keep that in when you edit it, Jake, because I'd fucking love to be sued by but FIFA. You see, I, fucking like, I come agree and with you, Nick. I agree with you that they, are, that they are. But then, you know, like most global mega corporations have got this sort of nastiness, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, like, like, like most global mega corporations, they've got a sweatshop somewhere. They've got human rights issues going on, garment factories going up like, like, like smoke bombs. Um, the difference is, that we still have this 
social concept that, that football is a force for good, that we've, we, I mean, nobody goes, well, shopping at Matalan, you know, it's great because, but somehow we've got this, well, football, it, it brings people together, it, and, and yet the reality from the sort of nitty-gritty of trying to go out on a Saturday night when the pubs are full of drunk guys and you don't feel safe walking home and blah, 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 to the, the picture behind it is that actually this isn't really true. There are, you know, sport, playing sport might be a wonderful and, and socially constructive thing, but the, the, this mega corporation that is now institutionalised corporate football, it no longer has any moral ground to stand in. In fairness, though, <laughs> I'll take the applause there. Well said. Sorry, I was just because I'm, I'm trying to calculate how to keep the conversation going. Well, in fairness and in, in you know and, and in disagreement, you know he is progressive, Blatter, in a lot of ways. I mean, he did say that you know female footballers should wear tighter shorts. He did, yeah. And that's yeah. you know help I mean, them run faster. Be... You know, he's only exactly. thinking. He's, you know, yeah. he's thinking from an athletic yeah. point of view. These baggy shorts are slowing yeah. them down. And so, then yeah. he said maybe Practical. the game would be more interesting if they started playing with the same size balls as the guys, <laughs> um, which which was a hilarious and b completely misunderstood the fact that they already do and they have done since the day since day one it's like one of these things where where you th you really you don't understand the women's game so much um it's it's sort of like um you know you know on the daily mail but they have like the the, the the racist headline and then above that there's a sort of colorful banner with a with a lifestyle story and um and one of my favorites if you're allowed to have favorites of these things is that they did a story that said why do celebrity women have such big feet Right, obviously not particularly news, um, but what was amazing about it is that when you read the story, the, an the answer, they, they didn't get it, the answer actually was because the celebrities you're talking about are American and the sizing is different. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, how, um, you know how we stand for democracy and we stand you know, against authoritarian dictatorship and places like that. Well, <clears throat> if, you're gonna, if you're waiting for Britain to criticise Qatar on any level, you'll be waiting a very, very long time because as we speak, vast chunks of London are being bought up by the Qatar Investment Authority Absolutely. to the point that, in fact, it's called Qataropolis yeah. in, 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 in Mayfair. In Mayfair. Um, and, so, and so, you know, we won't be hearing anytime soon from David Cameron or anybody else any criticism of Qatar because, yeah. you know, frankly, then who would pay for our debt? Absolutely. It, it would be deeply depressing if FIFA, the whole FIFA mess got sorted out by the sponsors. There would be nothing worse than Coca-Cola and McDonald's sorting Taking it out. Taking the moral high ground. Exactly. Yeah. And, and shocking thought, making the whole thing. But the thing is, if they walk away, then it just means that instead of McDonald's and, and Coca-Cola and Visa and Adidas, it'll be Nike and Pepsi. American uh, Express yeah. and Pepsi. And uh, Wimpy. <laughs> so I'm going to wrap it up there. I, I hope you've had a good evening. I really recommend you going to see We Are Many. It, 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 it'll cheer you up, even though it's a hor horrific subject. I, I walked out of the theatre cinema feeling really, really good and positive about the way that uh, grassroots social movements can try and change things and the way that uh, Amir actually mediated that was uh, a joy to behold. Um, so I'd like you to uh, thank our panel, James Sherwood, Amir Amirani, Michael Deacon and Kate Smurthwaite. <laughs> also Paul Willis who did a fantastic monologue in the first half. Very proud of you. And has someone um, applauded Nick Revel? I oh. feel like, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very generous of you.
Thank you for all your questions and thank you uh, for being such an engaged audience. There's one thing uh, I have to say that we've, we've had a fairly chaotic uh, month down here. Um, the man who does our website, an old friend of mine, Craig uh, Methven, uh, who I've known for 30 years, he, uh, when he, from when he was working with Amnesty and I was doing uh, gigs for them, uh, became a very good friend of mine. If you ever heard my radio sitcom, um, it, there's a character in it called Craig who was largely based on Craig um, and he sadly died about 10 di days ago uh, prematurely at the age of 54 um, so the website's been in a bit of chaos um, and I went to his funeral on Friday uh, which was a very moving event and uh, apart from anything else the way that his children all spoke very very Movingly and articulately and with real emotional lucidity it was a reflection on not just what a great bloke he was but what a great parent uh, my only regret, oh fuck, sorry. <coughs> my only regret about the funeral was that the play out music was the song you're going to hear now, and they didn't play it loud enough or long enough. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>